Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. As always, I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we're talking about The Northman, which is the new film written and directed by Robert Eggers. It's just been released on video on demand on um, this past Friday the 13th, just a few days ago. You may know Eggers from such indie mind blowers as The Witch and The Lighthouse. We're going to talk director as auteur here, because if anyone working today deserves the title, Eggers does. Create such distinctive films with such consistent preoccupations um, that, yeah, you, you kind of can't miss that it's Eggers. Um, and he got there in only three films, um, which is very impressive. But first, let's tackle The Northman, which has been, you know, not doing great at the box office. Um, it's a must see for cinephiles, so that so I've seen it, you've seen it, everyone I know has seen it. <laughs> but <laughs> that might just go to show what an endangered species we are, because um, this film, which represented Eggers' attempt to go mainstream with a bigger budget film of somewhere between 70 million and 90 million, kind of depends on who you read. According to The New Yorker, it's um, 90. According to The New York Times, it's 70 million. So there you go. Um, and, and working with a, the, a production company that finances New Regency, um, he's, yeah, he's making this first attempt. And, you know, it's very important to make a big profit. And so far, eh, not so hot. But just to, to, to kind of give you a comparison, The Witch um, from 2015 cost $4 million and made $40 million. So that's what put Robert Eggers immediately on the map in the film industry. And The Lighthouse cost $11 million in 2019, and I think it made like 18 or $20 million. Mm. So not as much, but so much critical attention on him by that point, you know, um, that it, it's considered, continued to advance his career to this point. Um, the Northman was intended to be, in Eggers' words, quote, the most entertaining Robert Eggers film that he could manage to make. It was, um, it's only made so far in its entire th international theatrical run, $52 million. As of mm. April twenty second, that was the last. Okay. So, and as he, that's not great. Um, as 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 Eggers points out in a recent New York Times interview, profits are a very big issue because there's a lot writing on the Northman um, that goes beyond just his own career. And here's the quote: "The fact that this movie got made, the fact that me and my team were allowed to make a large movie that's not a franchise superhero movie, is a success in and of itself. I'm incredibly <laughs> humbled and excited by the early reviews being so positive." But even if you absolutely hate this movie, I feel it's society's responsibility to, to root for it a little bit. Because <laughs> other filmmakers, that's, that's pretty funny. Because other filmmakers should get the opportunity to do this, and audiences should have the opportunity to see things other than superhero movies. I'm not even deriding superhero movies, but there needs to be room for something else too. Seems so ending on, yes, ending on a reasonable point there. Um, so, yeah, so I guess we do all have a stake in the North. Um, doing reasonably well, <laughs> or hopingly, eventually doing better. Um, so first, let's just ta tackle the main obvious question, which is, what did we think of the film overall? Dolores, you're up. Okay, this is hard. Um, mm. All right, so it's two hours and twenty seven minutes long. I think mm. I was I was com I was compelled. Like I enjoyed looking at the images. I remember coming home feeling like exhausted because there is so much adrenaline and violence and drums and but blood pumping that you kind of like if you're along for that ride, <laughs> you know, it's um it, you're like very in it in some ways. But I was also almost entirely unmoved by the you know which should be like a very like moving family drama um and 
by the end, <laughs> some of the violence was so gratuitous that I did almost want to laugh. It's not like it was like filmed badly or something. It's just like through sheer repetition mm-hmm. and seeing this poor guy like hung upside down like a piece of meat, you know, mm-hmm. like so many times. You're just mm-hmm. like, I don't know how much can the human body take? Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. Because in the end, he's. He's been pummeled and whipped and stabbed and you know, he's always staggering. It's a miracle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And as mm-hmm. I, I'm sure we'll discuss, like throughout the majority of the film, I thought it it had like a sort of ideological critique mm-hmm. <laughs> of this particular kind of like violence and revenge in the name of honor in the family. Mm-hmm. But I don't think ultimately that critique was followed through and we could talk mm-hmm. about that. So I was like mm-hmm. a little mystified. <laughs> Mm. Um, by the ending. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, like, as we've discussed, like, I, <laughs> I think I'd only recommend this to like you and other people right. who, I, <laughs> who I would know would be into like, you know, right. seeing the Viking thing. And I thought, mm-hmm. I thought all of the Viking ceremonies and, you know, the old religion and the hallucinations were, you know, very cool to watch. Mm-hmm. And, but um, yeah, in general, like it's pretty long <laughs> and mm-hmm. I didn't, I was not really moved. What, what did you think? <laughs> well, you know, basically agree in that I, I I I always find Edgar's films previous to this to be just to have early on an enthralling quality that just pulls me right into it. This is the first time I didn't happen and I kind of waited throughout the movie for it to happen. And yeah. you know, similar to your reaction, I, so much to it that I admire. And I like Viking movies as you as you know if you read the the film suck piece I did on the Vikings, the 1958 <laughs> Viking movie, I enjoy all things Viking and their representations. Um and so I was a little I was actually befuddled. I just kept sort of sitting there waiting to really feel pulled in. That said, you know, among the very admirable things going on, uh, the obsession with historical accuracy which is a, you know, a, a an absolute passion of Edgar. It's definitive of practically his whole life from childhood on. He's way into this. He had, he had, you know, first top, you know, scholars in Norse history and Viking history on call, literally taking his calls, replying by email, all that jazz on all sorts of obsessive points of accuracy. It's not like you wouldn't find anything inaccurate there. I'm sure you could if you really hunted, but as much as you could be accurate, he obsessed over accuracy and, if you read some of the interviews, there are some good examples of that, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Alexander Skarsgård as Prince Amleth wearing the same pair of essentially kind of like little leather boots um, throughout the entire film. And whenever they started falling apart, um, the costume designer would repair them with strips of leather. And Eggers enthused about this, saying it's, you know, not only is it so amazing to know all the things the Vikings did, but to know that they did them essentially while wearing moccasins is so amazing. <laughs> so he loves all this stuff. He completely obsesses and gets into all of this stuff, a big part of this whole process. Totally. So that is great. And he and he really wants us to put us in the mindset and the and the, you know, the religious beliefs that he's he, in other words, he's not doing the the dreaded thing that you see so many filmmakers who make period films do, which is it's essentially modern people just in funny old fashioned clothes. And there's really no respect for or sense of what it would actually been like or very little, or it's done so ham fistedly done so badly that there's a ton of like calling insane attention to every detail. Like, Oh my God, look at this spinning wheel. Let's drink it in or whatever. (laughs) You can also get over obsessing to the point that that makes it too, too upfront. He usually strikes a really great balance of this is a kind of lived reality. 
and I'm just going to plunge you into it. So, you know, you know, big respect for that, for, for, for trying to, for really trying to stick with that agenda. Definitely. It's just and that, yeah, I'll oh, go ahead. Well, I just really love like his films use the historical accuracy as the source of the horror in so many, like in, in the lighthouse and absolutely. In the witch. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, olden times are weird as fuck. And scary. <laughs> scary as hell. Yeah. <laughs> so I like, I appreciate that. And I think, I mean, um, here, I don't know if we can say the same but yeah i think in general we can like those viking ceremonies are they're terrifying you know mm-hmm. and they're like animism <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and rage and they deal a lot with like humiliation and submission and and you know domination um mm-hmm. so yeah respect <laughs> respect respect yeah. for for all of that but you know even even given that it's it's a weird thing to say that the 1958 movie, which is cheesy as hell, and, you know, it's got a smattering of, I'm sure, of Viking, you know, uh, historical research, but it's mostly like the big thrills of, you know, Viking blowing horns, making that crazy, you know, atavistic blaring sound that makes you scared just to hear it. And, you know, people <laughs> stomping around in fur capes and <laughs> fur circling and all it's, all, it's got all the key things, but tremendous amounts of cheese but it's oddly enough if you're into anything about viking mythology it it has scenes that are far more thrilling so that's an odd thing to say there's no question this is you know this is a more it's a more admirable and serious film at at every level yeah but that seems to be a kind of missing component part that i was i was very surprised by the last thing i was expecting with um with eggers oh and i should quickly note we're of course going to spoil the whole thing so just you know warning um, yes. you have to know that we're going to talk about everything can do it. Yeah. You know, we should, we should note that it's, you know, this it's loosely based on the Hamlet story. If you haven't already heard that, um, yeah. or which rather Hamlet sense. is loosely based on this, on this. exactly. Yeah. Hamlet is taken <laughs> from old Norse sagas. And so he sim- simply reclaims it. So you've got, you've got the, the, um, the, the situation when Prince Hamlet is a boy, he witnesses the killing of his father, King um arvindal played by ethan hawk somewhat odd casting we both agree i think totally <laughs> he's an he's kind of he's kind of slim and slight and modern so that was you know for to be a viking king yeah. but okay nevertheless we're going with that okay. um so he's killed um um by his um betraying half bastard brother fionor played by clay's bang i hope i'm saying that right um and his 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 mother is he watches her being carried out um, by this by this usurping king, um, so that's Queen Gudrun, she's played by um Nicole Kidman, who always looks absolutely freakish, but in this case looks kind of freakishly right. <laughs> yeah, it works. Um, she's right for the part, and she does some powerhouse acting, um, in a couple of key scenes. Um, and so of course he he does the vowing of revenge, and the you know, and that in addition he's going to supposedly save his mother, but first of course he has to he has to save himself because he's they're going to kill him too, so he winds up rowing away reciting a litany of uh, you know i will i will avenge you father i will save you mother etc yeah yeah so then that's the motivator for the whole film um even though he has to segue we don't follow in detail but he winds up being a kind of part of another viking clan that's clearly taken him in he's this big mountain man of muscle um berserker we we watch him <laughs> through a whole village raid he's in other words sort of forgotten as he says the icy river of hate that runs through his veins since mm-hmm. what he witnessed has sent him off on this other course where he's raiding, you know, villages in the land of Rus or in Russia, one assumes, um, <laughs> and fully partaking of the whole scary berserker thing. 
um, and has to be rerouted by a, a, a also scary seer figure, vision figure, um, played by Bjork, um, who has to remind him of his his revenge quest that he has to get back to. Is right. that any, is there any more important plot that we need besides that? Uh, I think well, Anya Taylor Joy oh, comes yes. into this, mm-hmm. and she's his love interest who he meets in the land of Rus, <laughs> yeah. and her name is Olga, and she's captured as a slave. He mm-hmm. also ends up um, posing as a Russian slave to infiltrate his um, stepfather's. We can't really call it a kingdom because right. his stepfather's lost his kingdom and is mm. now like you know um, pretty much raising sheep with like a small band of followers um, right. in some you know Nordic in Iceland. Hellscape. In some remote yeah. yes. <laughs> Iceland village, essentially, he's nowhere. He's not even in a village. It's they're in they're nowhere. They're in yeah. uh, out among the sheep. Yeah. So uh, Anya Taylor Joy as Olga has a sort of she's got a witchy vibe. She's you know supposed to be like a more like earthbound maybe maybe sorceress or mm-hmm. just like very smart <laughs> um, slave um, who he uh, you know they become lovers and ultimately she ends up at the end burying his children. Hmm. And the whole time you keep, as you said in your review for Jacobin, Eileen, you keep waiting for Anya Taylor-Joy to have something to do. Yes, <laughs> it's such a misuse because you're watching Alexander Skarsgård and he's probably as good as anyone could be. Yeah, he looks, he looks great. He looks great. He's really just like a, a, a special effect in and of himself. He's worked, <laughs> he's worked out to the point that it's just like, you know, just hulking, hulking muscles. And he just glowers his way <laughs> through practically the entire film to the point that he even complained to Eggers, like, you're, I'm a robot here. You're not giving me anything to play. Yeah. But um, so to, to me, that was a potential problem as well. I was just like, you know, it, I don't find him that interesting to watch beyond, you know, the play of the muscles um, after a certain point. And there stands Anya Taylor-Joy, already proven in her star-making role in The Witch as a, as a quite scintillating actor. And she, she doesn't have anything to do. I mean, there's a... There's a line she has where she says, you have the strength to break men's minds. I mean, men's bodies, but I can break their minds. And you're like, cool. And you're waiting to see her do that. Yeah. And she barely does anything. At some point, she literally makes a hallucinogenic soup. Um, Which, okay, that's something. But otherwise, it's like, meet me beyond Jan Hillock. And you and I will plot about revenge and escape. (laughs) And it's it's kind of a boring role for her. So that was very frustrating to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, I, and again, I don't know how much one could do if one were Alexander Skarsgård with that role and that right. script. Right. It might not have been possible to much more than that. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? And, yeah. But I, I, I mean, the other players are like phenomenal. I think, it, I, as you said, I thought Nicole Kidman was freaking fantastic in her one or two key scenes. She is so disturbing. Mm. Yes. <laughs> And uh, has that very weird look now because of the plastic surgery. Honestly, mm-hmm. I feel really bad. And I feel really bad for even saying it because, like, everyone gets work done. And I think hers, just sometimes it, like, doesn't take, you know, whatever. You have a certain kind of, like, consistency of your skin. And I, like, I feel terrible for her. It must be awful. <laughs> but I, Or is it just that she's had so much done? I think there's that question. I don't she know. She's had so much done that at this point. Yikes. But at any rate, you can only use her in freakish ways now. Like, if you yeah. see nine perfect strangers ideal as this kind of she's a cult <laughs> I don't know, leader. Russian cult leader <laughs> she's, if you give her something extremely outlandish and great like, right. so here she's just the most ferocious Viking queen ever she's way tougher than her husband it seems and yeah. she has an amazing scene where where and this is a big important plot point where finally Amleth gets back into you know all out for revenge and plotting and he finally is doing it 
and he confronts her wanting to save her from what he thinks has been her terrible fate being kidnapped and she says i was not i was not abducted i hated your father he kidnapped me i was i was wow. i was forced to be his bride i was enslaved after he did a raid somewhere so i always hated him i was fully for you know your your, your supposedly evil uncle who wasn't evil um killing him and saving me yeah, and it's and it's amazing. It's admittedly a pretty amazing turnaround. Yeah, you're not expecting if you're if you're following the the Hamlet plot, you're not expecting that. There's no there's no sense in Hamlet that Queen Gertrude like no, I was forced into all this. Right, um, she's supposed to be the an equally betraying figure, even right. though even though Hamlet doesn't want to think that, but it's it's a horror, horrifying thing to him. But nevertheless, and then when she she basically tries to seduce her own son. Yep. To make sure she still is is a figure not gonna of power. Get killed. Yeah. yeah, she's not gonna get killed, <laughs> and she's gonna she's gonna ascend with him to yet another queen like role in the in in power. Play. So she's the ultimate power player. She's quite terrifying. Um, yeah. So there there's that big change, but it's it's a surprising one in that it changes the logic. You're right of the whole thing that we've been watching. So now right. all the sense of this revenge quest has kind of drained away. You're just like, it all right. So now what are you doing here? These are just like sheep farmer people who already lost their kingdom. They want to be together. Uh, <laughs> exactly. What's he doing? Especially because he has the opportunity to escape with Olga, the Anya Taylor-Joy uh, figure, and they're in love and they can go away and be happy somewhere else. So why do that just seems just seems crazy and stupid. And yet, shall we talk about when he has the vision or should we save that? The, the let's say let's okay let's save it because like okay. maybe, i mean yeah so he it okay the whole time i thought this is like mm. a critique yeah <laughs> of like mindless you know honor based honor culture <laughs> violence and revenge and, totally yeah. machismo yeah, yeah. it seems so like heavily obviously it's oedipal obviously mm. it's the whole you must kill the father and avenge yes. the father <laughs> structure yes. of Ag every Agers admits Ayers admits this is like this is like Freud and Jung have a party, basic have a Viking party. Like, totally, like, which I'm down for. Like you know, mm. fun and evergreen. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, there is this really memorable scene where he has to go um, find a sword that has been like forged in right. I don't know the bowels of a mountain or something. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And um, it's like every it's like. He encounters this like corpse knight. It's everything from Indiana Jones and the Last <laughs> right. Crusade with you know the knight guarding the grail, <laughs> right? Or like the yeah. commendatory and Don Giovanni. You know, it's every uh -huh. like terrifying avenging patriarch that you must strike down mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to survive. You know, mm -hmm. staggering. Um, it, and it's great. It's like really entertaining. And but I thought like the point of this film was going to be at the end. This is all like at the end of Hamlet. This is all mm. shown to be so useless and like mm -hmm. look at the body count mm -hmm. and like this is what organizes your society everyone ends yeah. up dead how is that any way to live you know but that is not how it ends mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and we, we've been talking about the the final two images which to me don't feel like eggers and don't particularly make sense um mm -hmm. in this film except to do the usual hollywood thing which is to like reaffirm the importance of the family mm -hmm. um the final two images are as Omelette is dying, he has mm -hmm. battled his stepfather on uh, the side of a volcano. Should we pause there to talk about the volcano battle? Oh, the volcano battle. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah. They, after so many battles, you have to have an ultimate epic battle. So they literally have to fight in a volcano, like leaping from rock to rock to avoid the lava. Naked. 
in the nude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. then I think like Amlet uh, gets skewered in his skewered in his belly by yes, Fjolnir's hack- sword. <laughs> yeah, while he hacks off, off head. skull. <laughs> I mean head. Yes, yes. So they both yeah. die at the same die time simultaneously. Yeah. So again, there are no winners. So you're like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I could get down with this. You know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, there are no winners, right, man? And then, yeah. <laughs> but the last image is of like Omelette kind of like, I don't know, hallucinating, having a vision of Olga with the two children of his that she will bear. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to like him being, she says, like, you know, I don't know, go to the light or something. You, yeah. <laughs> she says, you have you've completed your quest. Now go, go to Valhalla, you know, your yep. destiny, which, you and, know, you know from the beginning. In fact, isn't there an intonation at the beginning? Yes. You know, this is his destiny. So they try to have a full circle effect by saying, no, he's always been destined. He's always been going. To well, so yeah, you see this distant figure riding, riding, riding through the incredibly epically tall gates of Valhalla yep. um, to glory. Um, and you can only do that if you're a warrior and you die in battle. Totally. Um, yeah. So that's the goal. And yeah. it, I mean, the whole, like, so the, the family image of Olga and the children harkens back to this image mm. that, that I really did think was interesting. It, mm. it kind of like recurs throughout the religious ceremony, you know, vision and hallucination scenes, which is of the blood ties between Omelette and his father and his mother and then his future children and mm. all of the sort of like dead kings before him. And mm. to, to me, this was like a really gorgeous illustration of like, you know, the blood and kinship sy- system, which, mm. you know, by which property and all kinds of things are the right to life <laughs> has been passed down throughout the centuries um a system that has obviously like been responsible for a lot of violence mm-hmm. and i've been i've been reading my donna haraway um <laughs> with my class <laughs> and i'm going to say this really long book title and i'm really sorry but um i mean many people of course have like critiqued the the sort of like blood and kinship system and um mm-hmm critiqued the violent the violence done in the name of this uh these ideas which you know is translated to like obviously 19th and 20th century racism as well mm-hmm. but um Haraway's book is called Modest Witness at Second Millennium Female Man Meets Anko Mouse Feminism and Technoscience <laughs> but she she has a really gorgeous chapter on um biological kinship categories and I thought this was like such an amazing illustration of a sort of like traditional uh like you know just like vision of what a family tree is uh, on mm. screen it literally looks like a tree and a dna strand and like an umbilical cord right. um a connecting womb, yeah. all of these people mm-hmm. yeah and so to i thought the film was going in the direction of like um this is cool and it's meaningful and obviously it has like some kind of very primal pull on people but mm-hmm. also this is no way to live <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think ultimately it kind of obscured the this is no way to live thing um, mm-hmm. in favor of like, oh, yes, this has all been worth it because family. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know. It doesn't feel like Eggers, that final family moment or that final Valhalla moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't it just didn't to me like match the rest of or maybe it did match the rest of the film. If it's very traditional Hollywood. And I was just shocked to see it here. Well, and it's also confusing because. You know, his project in all his films is a kind of to put you there, you know, to, to seize hold of your your imagination and, and as much as is possible, place you in a much older time and a much different culture and have you be in it. Yeah. But the, these these last images have a kind of tacked on unmemorable quality to me anyway, that make it like a question. Are you trying to, you know, you've already foretold he's going to he's going to be he's going to 
complete this. He's going to go to Valhalla. He's destined to be this great warrior and fulfill that kind of destiny. And is this kind of doing in the Eggers thing where you you have to be immersed in the way they saw it, the way they they would have believed what they would have cared about. So that in the end, yes, he's going to have to choose between the family life or the the Valhalla life. And he, of course, goes for the Valhalla life. But because it doesn't have a strong impact, I don't think it's a very strong image of him going to Valhalla. It's, to me, not even a memorable picture. I know. So for some reason, I remember like hers seconds. a little more. Yeah, it's like yeah. a three-second long. It's nothing compared to, say, the glorious Viking funeral that ends. Um, that's probably quite inaccurate from what I've read about actual Viking funerals. Um, that ends the 1958 version of the Vikings, which is so extraordinarily great that even though the ultra-violent, irredeemable in modernized Viking lead, the lead played by Kirk Douglas has to lose in the end to the much softer, nicer, less instinctively violent Tony Curtis. And so he can go off with Janet Lee, who's a Christian princess <laughs> from Wales. They, they get to be the happy couple who live and are clearly going to be not, not plunged into the Viking world of excess. They're going to not, not, they'll probably be in England. Um, he's, he, he gets the celebratory. Oh my God, there's nothing to compare to the Viking life. It's, it's you literally sent out on a Viking boat into the middle of the sea. And then your 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 warriors shoot flaming arrows at the boat and set it wildly aflame, and then it's burning as you are as you are sinking. So fire and water together. It's Damn. gorgeous. It's yeah. just gorgeous. And it the Viking theme comes up, which is beautiful in that movie. Wonderful. It incorporates the Viking blowing horn from the cattle horn. Gorgeous. The whole thing's so gorgeous that that's what you remember forever. You're just like, man, it's cool to be a Viking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that one's unambiguous. All the coolest scenes in that film are about how cool it is to be a Viking. And even though you know, yeah, yeah, sure, they're not the nice characters. You know, these other people are, but you don't care about them. Hardly at right. all. Right, right. This is very different and much more ambiguous where you're like, yeah, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do at the end? Because it does seem very strong. Like once you know, once the, the, the Queen Gudrun has explained what the what once Hamlet knows his whole quest was based on things he never understood. He, yeah, he never, he never knew what he was doing all this time. Now it's got to call everything into question, but it doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't. So he goes on with his quest, but then it's complicated by the by loving Anya Taylor Joy and the possibility of being able to go away with this Olga figure. And they're actually on a boat leaving when he when. Turns around and turns back, and you're he just turns like, back. You crazy bastard. Why? Yes, why? <laughs> and it's because he has a vision that she's carrying his children, and he's got a. He, he makes. He, there is an explanation thrown in. Like, you will be hunted forever if they know you're carrying my child. And I'm like, will they? Yeah. These sheep, these sheep herders in Iceland yeah. that you've already decimated, you've decimated their whole community. And really? So that doesn't <laughs> seem at all compelling as an explanation for why he has to go back. So you just feel sort of vaguely impatient. And then he goes back and he does the Viking thing. And of course, you know, lays waste to everybody and goes to Valhalla. But it's very, it is, it's a very hard ending to read. Like, what are you supposed to, where are you supposed to be emotionally at the end? Where are you, where are you, what are you with? What are you for? What are you against? Totally. Yeah. And I can't, you know, I can't help wondering if that's the part of the studio interference that you yeah. mentioned Edgar's mm-hmm. signaled in his, uh, you know, New Yorker article about. Right. And have I, no, I've already forgotten. Have I already read it? Have I read I, the quote? I don't think so. I, I think, don't think so. Yeah. Yes. He, he, there's a great interview with a very extended rather profile, I should say, with, with Robert Eggers in the New Yorker that he did kind of early on in the, in the, you know, PR promotional thing about the movie. Um, and which he says quite 
a very bold statement about the interference from New Regency. He said, frankly, I don't think I will ever do it again, even if it means like not making a film this big ever again. And by the way, I, I'd like to make a film this big. I'd like to make a, one even bigger. But without control, I don't know. It's too hard on my person. Hmm. So even later, you know, it's clear that the that this profile is being put together over a number of probably weeks because it seems like there's this recurring, you know, now this has happened, now this has happened. You know, while while they're talking to him, he's getting notes from the studio about the problematic test scores on the early cuts of the film, which are not the scores are not good. People mm -hmm. are having trouble saying, you know, you need a PhD in like Viking history to be able to follow this. Um, so he's having to. At, least, at the very least, do more and more cuts. I don't know if he, it's not clear if he had to do more filming, if he had to add or take away lines, if he had to do anything more than that. So he's at first very clear about like, yeah, this, wow, this is not my way of working. He's always been very <laughs> into total creative control. And, but by the end, he's walking it back saying, well, you know, no, ultimately I stand by the movie. They really, the notes were actually very helpful. They made it much better by the end. And, you know, this, I, I'm, I like this version of the movie. You do have to wonder, because that's a very typical process. When, when indie people do PR, they usually don't know how to do PR, i.e. they tell the truth. And yeah, then yeah. <laughs> they're told, they're hauled aside by their agent, manager, producer, whoever, and told why they should never have said that. And then they have to quickly, you know, make up something about how everything was great and they loved everybody in the whole thing. It's a triumph. You know, it's typical. So exactly. you don't know exactly how to take it, but it certainly does seem like there's been interference even just in experientially, it seems that way, you know. So taking a guess, it does seem like something is not typically eggersy about about this film. Exactly. And one of the things you also mentioned in your review, which I found striking and totally agree with, mm -hmm. um, is that in the other films, The Witch and The Lighthouse, there's mm -hmm. like a signature shot <laughs> for each film that really brings you into the into the movie. And The Northman, while it does have some sort of like pretty staggering um, tracking mm. shots that you mentioned, they're not it's not like that same unique quality. So can you walk us through those shot types for The Witch, The Lighthouse and then The Northman? Yeah, well, certainly for me, I'm talking about, like, what are the shots that just, dry, like, grip you emotionally? Like, you are there. You are put in to, the, to, the, to this very strange world. And he tries to preserve the strangeness of, you know, 1620s, you know, New England in The <laughs> yeah. Witch. And uh, 1890s, you know, off the coast of Maine in The Lighthouse. Um, for The Witch, it seems to me, the, the shot that just wowed me is, is, like, about five minutes into the film. The father of a Puritan family is in a in the, a kind of religious setting, surrounded by the whole community, defying them and condemning them for being insufficiently pure. Mm -hmm. Which you can imagine how pure he means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they wind up being exiled. They're thrown out of this community where that that's the only community. It's nothing out there but terrifying wilderness, you know, 17th century wilderness, United States. So the shot is as the, their little rickety wooden wagon with all their possessions and the whole family is coming out. You get shots roughly from the point of view of the children sitting in the back of the wagon as the gates, the very tall wooden gates of the community are closed against them and they are being driven out um, into the into the woods, into the deep, deep woods where, you know, there's going to be witches and things like that. And But even before there's a witch, even before there's any overt move toward horror, you're already so filled with dread. I mean, there's no way you're not, they're not going to survive. It was all mm -hmm. a settlement at that time could do to survive much right. less people on their own. Out there, no, there's nothing good's <laughs> going to happen after that. 
So that's terrifying. If it's the lighthouse, it's kind of similar. It's a similar kind of God, the wilderness was terrifying. <laughs> um, I, again, it's a it's a sailor. He's dropped off at the. It's nighttime. It's rough weather, and he is dropped off on this you know stony rock out in <laughs> out in the Atlantic, where there's nothing but a lighthouse, where he's going to have to stay for months. Um, and you know he's going to be under a very very weird, <laughs> very difficult boss played by Willem Dafoe. And everything about it just looks horrifying. From the moment he's dropped off, it's shot very beautifully. It's shot in, um, what is it called? Orthochromatic um, mm. stock, black and white stock. It's, he's trying to mimic older uh, looks of older types of film, silent film, etc. Um, and it's shot in an almost square. I think it's 1.19 to 1, so it's almost square aspect ratio. So everything about it is, is meant to kind of evoke a past. Past, uh, borderline incomprehensible but right away you just feel like this is a terrible fate and it's only going to get worse and you know it so in both there's the same structure of like you start with it already being very bad just based on the wilderness and right. then out of the harshness of the wilderness and the time emerges these further terrors and mind fucks <laughs> that are going to be <laughs> incredible in both so both grip you emotionally by putting you there in dire circumstances immediately when you go to when you move to um uh the the northmen they're beautiful and grand shots they're they're the homecoming of king arvindal and and he's got with his boats coming home from a long voyage of raiding or whatever across these north seas that are very choppy and dramatic mm-hmm. and the son the, the 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 boy prince amleth is exulting in his return he worships his father so you're just cutting back and forth with his exhilaration to see the boats come and the boats are coming. It looks it looks very handsome, very beautifully shot, the whole thing. But there's nothing like gripping, even as they right. come in and there's the queen and there's, you know, and you're, pretty soon you are going to get to the betrayal. It doesn't take that long to get to the big betrayal. But it's just there's nothing to like make you go, whoa, <laughs> I'm in. Oh, my God, this is so compelling. I, mm. Right, right. Yeah. And even though, I mean, you did mention um, some of the action sequences, like the Viking raids of villages mm. were like pretty impressive. I Very. think you meant, yeah, there's and like a, oh, go ahead. How, how long was the longest tracking shot that you noticed? There's a four minute, <laughs> there's a four, I, and I only know this because someone else timed it. It's a, there's a four minute tracking shot in the, in the scene of the ultimate mayhem in the North. Um, mm. So that village raid that Amleth, who's, you know, on totally Viking Berserker, you know, raised by some other clan, um, is the, the lead terroring, terrifying figure. And he's rampaging through the village, but so are all the other Vikings. And of course, there's nothing but screaming and panic and running and women getting dragged around and men <laughs> getting chopped and killed. And, and so everything is happening. There's hundreds of people in this scene, or it seems, running and running. And if anything goes, if you've ever done, had to do a tracking slash dollying shot, they're they're hellacious if you've got five elements because something right. can always go wrong, yeah. right? Whether it's actors or lighting or that you know you you wobble the shot at the wrong spot or there's a million things. So the idea that they had to do this repeatedly, of course, to get it all right, because has that many moving parts in it. That's crazy, even attempt. That's insane. That's like that's like Cecil B. DeMille style, you know. It you've really got is. like five thousand extras to choreograph. Yeah, it's Egypt. You've got two cameras and one chance. <laughs> Right. And it's Go. just brutal, brutal on your actor. So Alexander yeah. Skarsgård would be basically falling to his knees in exhaustion. 
yeah. um, by the end of these takes because it's just so ruling <laughs> to have uh. to do it and then do it again and then do it again. Um, so Poor he guy. shoots that way. He's he, uh, Robert Eggers is, is fascinating to read about his um, style. He's a total formalist. I always love a formalist. Yeah. Because they know exactly, exactly what they want. You can wind up saying, I don't like what you do, but you have to acknowledge they know what they <laughs> they know what right. they do. They know what they want. So he storyboards everything. He's a mad storyboarder, and he doesn't go for coverage, which, if you know the style of a lot of directors, they shoot a ton from every angle <laughs> so that they can get into the editing room. And then when it's not the, you know, the white hot pressure of production, they'll have everything they could possibly need. I have a close on this. I have a medium. I have this angle. I have that. They just get ridiculous amounts of coverage so they can choose what cuts to get their best later. Right. Eggers does not do this. And formalists in general tend not to, you know, that's the Hitchcock line, the Coen brothers, you know, people who are like, nope, you don't even have to build that thing over there. because We're <laughs> never going to see it because we're only looking at it from this one angle, which is the angle we want. That's and amazing. so for actors, that part can be kind unless they want to really improvise and stuff that can be good because you know exactly what you're doing. Right. Um, it's all planned beforehand, mad pre-planning that goes on. So he's very very intent about that kind of thing. He brings the same key creative crew with him. He's got the, he's had the same DP on all of his films. Um, already blanked on his name. What's it? Oh, Jaron. Oh, I always yeah. forget his first name. Jaron Blaschke is his DP for all three. He's had the same editor, Louise Ford. I believe he's had the same you know production designer. And you know, kudos to him because that means he probably had to fight to keep them when he did that budget jump. Usually, right. if you're coming out of the indies, they want you to jettison your key crew for more quote unquote established, you know, successful, mm. um, known quantities. They want you to shore up your relative inexperience at a, at this bigger level with people who are used to shooting big films. So this was huge learning curve. I mean, Jaron Blasky has said the same thing by the time they got to the end of the North Northman, he said, now we finally know how we should have done it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how, how difficult, <laughs> but all of his shoots it sounds like are difficult. The lighthouse is hilarious. How grueling. It was to be up in Nova Scotia in a lighthouse oh. they had to build for the for the film, um, and the weather just brutal and just, and the demands on the two actors who, by the way, sought out Robert Eggers. This is another thing about being an auteur right out of the gate is people can see, oh my God, this is this is someone who's a real filmmaker right from the start. So both Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson separately saw the witch and approached uh, and set up a meeting. Um, to meet Robert Eggers and say, I want to work with you. So that's fabulous. That's how you build careers because, of course, that's money in the bank. Someone who's a name. And Defoe um, is perfect for these films. <laughs> oh, my God. He's born. And he even said it. He recognized it in The Witch. He's like, no, this guy is, it's like this guy is in my head and yeah. I know I can play his stuff. And it's true. Every time you see William Defoe, you're like, man, you were born to do this. <laughs> okay, so we should, like, shout out to the supporting players in the Northman. Yes. There's William Defoe is some kind of crazy, like, seer, you know, uh -huh. prophet, priest, um, uh -huh. insane bringer of visions, which makes yes. sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. and Bjor Bjork plays, like, Bjork. a seeress. <laughs> She's terrifying and wonderful. Yes, I um, know. We should note that, 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 that he winds up meeting Bjork I forget he was on a trip to Iceland or something, and she's the one who brings him. And I don't know how to pronounce his name. S J O N, the the yes. novelist poet Sion? who is the Sean Sean, who's the co-writer of uh, the Viking. And of course, no one thought to to, to like seek out York, like and see if she'd do a film. She hasn't done a film 
since, since you know dancer in the dark dancer in the dark where she yeah. swore she would get a breakdown and swore she'd never do another film so yeah anyway yep. segue sorry Carry on. no it's just rad it's rad and i mm-hmm. um and then there is um who's the guy who plays fjolnir um uh oh his name is clay i don't know if i'm pronouncing this right i think i assume it's irish clay's uh c-l-a-e-s bang bang is his last name which is cool he was wonderful bang. he was great oh he yeah. looks great and he yeah. has to be compelling he has to be compellingly strong enough to be able to fight alexander skarsgård in the volcano at the end yes exactly so no wonder they they have to wound and pummel and stab and everything else because otherwise you'd be like come on man this guy's a generation a generation younger than you and he's huge yeah, but, there's no way. <laughs> but but Bang is somehow so fierce and looks so great that you're like, yeah, I buy that. <laughs> yeah. I totally buy that. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's good. Yeah, he was he was excellent. I mean, the casting is really good, except that, mm-hmm. you know, your uh poor uh omelet doesn't poor. have a lot to do. And Anya Taylor Joy just kind of like twiddles her thumbs mm-hmm. <laughs> for the film. But but just as presences in the film, they're they're all right. There you can see why he did the casting. He tends to be great at casting. Yeah, 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 the casting's general. fabulous. Yeah, and there, I noticed a kind of like typical Eggers character arc. I don't know if you mm-hmm. agree, but yeah. I, I think in all three of these films, The Witch, The Lighthouse, and The Northman, we start mm-hmm. out identifying with the protagonist, thinking mm-hmm. that they're facing a foe, whether mm-hmm. real, as in The Northman, like a ste- mm-hmm. you know a stepfather, or supernatural, um, as in The Witch, and to an extent, The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the film turns, and we begin to doubt their like sanity or their goodness, and right. it, it turns out that like each of them may actually be the agent of darkness, right, <laughs> or have been all along. You mm-hmm. know, but you're not exactly sure, and you're kind of still with them even when mm-hmm. they turn, right. um, which is really interesting. And I don't know I mean, if yeah. this is how the myth of, of Omelette was structured initially or if it just like took this shape because it was filtered through Eggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, yes, you can definitely see it in The Witch where she's constantly being, we see, unfairly accused that the Thomason character played by Anya Teller-Joy by her family once they're exiled of doing all these things that are destructive and bad, which we mm-hmm. see she's not doing or we think we see. But they, as they go on accusing her and accusing her, of course, she's also being lulled over and for every justification <laughs> to the side of where she's going to wind up in the end, which is, you know, I'm, yeah, Satan, I'll take you up on that offer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, who's talking to Black Philip, and who's got the who's got the <laughs> darker, <laughs> the darker tendencies that are somehow or are calling in darkness somehow because of some sinfulness there. Yeah. Um, and in the lighthouse, yes, it's a, a kind of similar thing with the Robert Pattinson character seeming like he, he, the young man who seems like he's totally at the mercy of this nutty, violent, <laughs> you know, crazed masturbator of a maniac <laughs> boss that he's got. And then, of course, the more you reveal about the, his character, the more you start going, hmm, he's got a whole secret backstory. It's not even his right name, et cetera, that you, you, you were discovering as you move. Right. Yeah. And in this one, it's just like, yes, you're supposed to be watching all this going, yes, you're immersing me in what seems like is about as historically accurate a Viking saga as we're likely to get. Yep. But am I, how, to what extent am I questioning everything <laughs> that's going on in here is a question. And I think yeah. if, it, if it had had a more sure-handed ending, a better ending in short, I think we'd be much clearer on that. 
I'm with you. Because, I mean, I really liked, like, all right, when I, you know, when I raised this issue about, like, Mm. blood ties and kinship, I like that the film acknowledges how enticing that is. It's not like we're, like, I'm not Not looking down on that, like, yeah, right. Like, (laughs) ew, how fascist, how macho. Like, all of that shit's really exciting. And I could totally get into it, you know? And it's, I mean, that that's the truth of it. Like, of course, there's a great lure to, like, protecting your family and it does appear to give life meaning but does it give a satisfying meaning does it provide you know a like good stable society no but it's you know it was cool that i thought the film was showing its allure and its glamour and when Mm. the viking men like do their crazy um ceremony where they take on the like animus of a bear or a wolf i mean that is just rad (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um And so there are, yes, it has rad elements. It just, they aren't as conclusive as, again, like in something like the 58 Vikings. So to the point that, you know, clearly you're supposed to be having interludes of questioning and of of all your kind of guilty and perhaps guilty. I'm never guilty about my enthusiasm for writing, so. (laughs) (laughs) But some people I understand are. (laughs) To have it all drain away is very disconcerting in that big reveal scene of like nothing is what you thought it was. Um, Yeah. And then to have to keep pressing on. And then then you clearly are meant to feel the relentlessness of it. Like, wow, this is relentless and dumb. Kind of. You can't yeah. help but feel like, really, you're on the boat. You're leaving. You're escaping with this woman that you love. You know? Yeah. And then he dives I'm off free. the edge. And you're just like, you moron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you think it's going for, like, a really interesting critique. And then it doesn't. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get like kind of like a Hollywood ending. So I don't know. And speaking of Viking funerals, remember mm-hmm. the um there is like a young man who is killed. He's the asshole entitled older son of the stepfather. And he um he get he does get killed by Omelette and he has a proper Viking funeral and his betrothed, not even his wife, I believe, his betrothed, this young woman, mm-hmm. um, has to be killed and sent out to sea with him. And that seems mm-hmm. like, you know, the opposite of the Kirk Douglas Viking funeral. Right. You feel you're like, what? That's crazy. Like, poor yeah. girl. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So again, yeah, I think you're right. I think more and more that you say this, I think it really the ending got very muddled. And it would be very, you know, we're totally guessing here. I've seen nothing where this is discussed. Yeah. As something that was requested or anything else. But it does seem like, you know, this is this is typical in studios, like at the end of a film noir that's wonderful and gripping and you're hundred percent there. They would tack on a happy ending and it was all all to a, you know, placate the censors. B, they didn't want to foist a bummer on the public, you know, because often people wanted the happy ending. They want things to turn out well. So like Gilda is a great example of like you go all (laughs) with this, the darkest, most sadomachistic, like thrill fest you've ever seen. And then suddenly at the end, it's like Gilda never did anything. She never did anything bad. You both love each other, you crazy kids. Just get together and apologize and kiss and make up. And they do. And you're like, what? And you just have to ignore it. That happened over and over and over again. Very, very yeah. typical. Just, to, just make the ending different. Yeah. And then people are all okay with you. So, you know, it doesn't reveal in the New York profile or anywhere else I've read, like, that that, that what was the magic thing that suddenly the, the, the New Regency said, yeah, this this cut is fine. You can run right. with this cut. What did he have to do? We don't, we just don't. It's not we fine. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and if he wants to if he wants to do, make another film at a big budget level, he's smart. He shouldn't he shouldn't be telling because he can. It's amazing how people hold it against you. You the, the amount of lying people have to do and Ugh. pretending that they all love each other and everything went great. 
is it's off the charts what you're trying to build a career. So I'm I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. And he's you know it's I really recommend if you're into Eggers reading about him. He's such an odd person to try to fit in to to frankly the quite brutal um system of mainstream filmmaking that I'm amazed he really wants to do it. I would have thought he'd pull a Todd Solance and say yeah, this ain't for me. I'm going yeah. right back to indies because if you read about him and he admits it you never had a more creatively pampered child in his life. From like huh. age 10, he says he chose, he chose the, the art life, the creative path. But unlike most people who try to choose it, he had every adult support you could have. He has like a professor at, I think it's the University of New Hampshire father. He has an ex-actor mm. mother. And they let him have a, he was part of a children's you know, playhouse with like a stock company of child actors putting oh, wow. on plays. I mean, living in, they used to play Enchanted Forest because they lived in such idyllic settings in New England. Wow. Um, he, he, he put on such sophisticated plays that by, you know, he was getting scouted by theater pros. By the, I think by the time he's in high school, by like the time he's a senior in high school and hired to, to, to now do real theater. And you're just wow. like reading this going, man, I mean, it just uninterrupted praise, support, you're a young genius man, you go. Oh, I was filled with envy. I was just reading this going, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I got none of that. I also dedicated myself to some sort of weird path. Did I get any help? No. But yeah, so he, he had a very rarefied upbringing where he was mm -hmm. just allowed to pursue his own creative obsessions with you know, the opposite of interference, with everyone cheering him on and giving him resources. So, it, yeah, also, moving right into The Witch. Yeah. Yeah, and, well, oh, God, I'm sorry. Um, all right, continue on with The Witch, but I do want to return to his oddness in The Northman. Oh, go, go for it. Well, you quoted something really interesting in Jacobin. Mm. Like, you thought that his, or I believe you quoted him saying his own mm. sort of, like, explanation for The oh, Northman yeah. not doing terribly well. He's like, I don't know what else to say, except, like, really when it gets down to it, like, I'm not normal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Let me get to let me see if I can find the exact quote because it's very telling. It's, it's yeah. very good. Let me see, let me see. Oh god, of course I'll be able to... Oh here it is. <clears throat> the quote. Currently, with my best intentions, like I'm not normal. I look like a poster boy for the Bushwick <laughs> the Bushwick hipster. But that is where my relatability ends, I fear. And yep. then he put I fear at the end. That's just not something people say anymore. But it's something you would have read in old novels and stuff. So that clearly he's one of those people who's, who's you know, grown up living in books and in old movies. He's also a big cinephile, uh, you know, and fantasy and history and all of these things that gripped him when he was very young. And he's largely in his imagination, lived there. And so he even has the odd speech patterns that go with it when he talks. There's other quotes that are equally endearing in their oddity where he yeah. talks like someone who <laughs> who absorbed older shall we say older grammar usages and phraseology <laughs> and of course i know this myself because i was also a weird kid who did some and, talk weird and had to learn to adjust my speech patterns for my audience that was look at me funny um but that he doesn't that he doesn't adjust his speech patterns is really telling of how much acceptance and even you know praise he's gotten he isn't even that self-conscious about being such an odd duck yeah but and it yeah go ahead well, no, I just I kind of love that explanation for the Northman, even as a film, you know, it, I don't know. There's something about it that's kind of worth your time because mm -hmm. he's such a weirdo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, you, know? you totally. Oh, you. I, I should. We're, we're being we're perhaps being sounding too hard. I think you should totally see the North. 
It's yeah. not like it's a throwaway. There's nothing here. Oh no! If we say if we're suggesting that, we don't mean that at all. Yeah, it's just given the high level. He comes in on a very high level. The witch is just unbelievable as a feature debut. It's so accomplished. It's insane. Yeah, it's like perfect. for a first feature. That's crazy. Yeah. I still my favorite of his films, though I also think the, the Lighthouse is is quite marvelous in its absolutely insane way. <laughs> and but again, it's a complete work. Even if you're like with the Lighthouse going, I don't know how far uh, if I'm gonna go entirely with this. <laughs> it's such a complete vision, such a complete piece of work. And you know, they again, if you look at interviews with Defoe and Pattinson, they're like, oh no, it was this is how it's gonna be, and you are either in or you're out. There's gonna be no tinkering with the script. There will be mm-hmm. nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And so he's got, he's very absolute when he's in his usual tendencies, which makes sense. He's been in charge creatively for years, but it was in theater. Right. Um, that it's, that it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. It's, well, it, and even in terms of his speech patterns, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting that you noted that because the script for all three of the films, mm-hmm. um, it, it does come from, you know, for lack of a better word, like hist- historical sources. So like mm-hmm. the witch um, words are, you know, entire phrases and definitely like the vocabulary used by the characters comes mm-hmm. from diaries of the time mm-hmm. um, and from the, that specific place. So it is extremely odd, this language. And in the lighthouse, oh, my God, I don't even know the 19th century slang. Oh, I know that. I, <laughs> yeah, she's there's a famous novelist. A re- one of those re- uh, at the era in you know uh, 1800s, uh, one of the regionalist novelists who specialized in Maine, and, and oh, she, wow. her characters were all based on Maine dialects because she knew them well. And it's Sarah. I'm gonna mess it up. Sarah okay. Orangeuette. She's she's actually oh, yes. very very well known, Credit and I just haven't okay. I haven't read her myself. But so that was at least one of the sources for they had they they found uh you know a, a period instructions for how to run a lighthouse you know that they wow. use that to base you know things that had to go on in the lighthouse oh no and then they used a lot of her a lot of her main dialect for speech pattern so no they yeah. do tons they do, it's very very rigorous the the whole finding finding where can we find the types of language and behaviors and all that jazz very interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that adds to the uncanniness because, you know, historical uh, other modes of thinking <laughs> and language are so very foreign. Um, so, mm-hmm. it you know, it it's a re- it's an excellent source for horror. And that's kind of that's his genius. Well, yeah. So, so I, he's he said some amazing things like that. There was resentment over um, the witch coming out and being announced as a horror film because people's expectations of horror film are so narrow. Hmm. That they've been, I don't know, I was shocked by that. Like, what else is it? It's called The Witch. <laughs> there's yeah, a witch. I mean, bloody. how is it anything else? But I don't know if it's, there's not enough blood, there's not enough mayhem, there's not zombie attack. I don't know. But he just said, Weird. oh no, there was, a, there was a certain amount of backlash for that. But he said, for me, it's a horror film. For me, The light, the Lighthouse has a, is a kind of horror film. Of course. I think he's definitely, in the, you know, and he's a huge Poe fan. He's a huge Lovecraft fan. In fact, the mm. initial idea for him and his twin brother, Max... What, who co-wrote The Lighthouse was they were trying to adapt an unfinished short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Lighthouse and it wasn't working out so they wound up you know there's a historical case uh, in Wales actually it's I've read a couple of different accounts one was just um what was it did they both just go crazy but one was one killed the other one went crazy and uh. killed the other and that was supposedly the um the lurid true life event that inspired that was what that was what was being brooded about anyway when the movie came out that was probably why i wanted to see it i'm like holy shit it was like 1830s we're up the coast of wales and it supposedly at least according to the ballyhoo at the time it led to a rule in lighthouses that you had to have three 
and not two. Um, <laughs> oh, just so you'd that. have a you'd have a safety, which I love. I hope that's true. I love that. But then yeah, you know, since then, when I tried to look it up again, I found a much plainer account that it was just two guys named Thomas. Oh no, it wasn't. They didn't even go crazy. Their the lighthouse was just they died because there was a huge storm and it and they were killed in the lighthouse. I reject um, that story. I like the other. I reject. One. No, the other yeah. one is so much better than I agree. We don't. Even if that's true, we don't care. We yeah. like the other story much better. Yes. Um. But yeah. But there is a huge storm sequence, obviously, that further helps drive the two men to their absolute limits in the lighthouse. But at any rate, it's yes, it's that kind of an impressive investment that you kind of have to have. You kind of have to have in order to achieve these effects of the weird past. And the past is so weird <laughs> that we can't even go back to like I don't know. If you see someone do accurate 20s or 30s, 1920s or 30s speech patterns, they sound so, <laughs> so impossible. Like no one could have talked like that, but they did. They're recordings, you know, and I if know. you base a performance on it, you as, you know, famously, um, <laughs> who was it who did when she did Dorothy Parker? What's her name? Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yes. Is that right? Jennifer Jason Lee? Did she? Oh, am I, I forgetting? Know. Yes. It, what's it's, the film? It's Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle. She's playing Dorothy Parker. Huh. Who's the one who's the obsessive? She's a great actor, but she's small and slight. Bibi Newer? Jennifer Jason Lee? Well, that is a person, and that But that's that not works. her. Ah! I can't <laughs> believe I'm blanking. <laughs> but at any rate, she's an insane she's insane about this kind of speech pattern accuracy. So she absolutely listened to recordings and recordings and recordings and did a perfect Miss, you know, Dorothy Parker. Um, impersonation and and everyone's like it's so distracting you're taking me right out of the movie she got all <laughs> dissed <gasps> by all these critics who are just like it's just so much it's so much oh that's so, so funny. yeah so our relationship to the past doesn't even have to be very past right for us to be like that's too unfamiliar <laughs> right. you have to do something to help me here um <laughs> and and his unwillingness to help or his willingness to like push you and be like no the whole the whole my whole concept of horror is to put you in a version of the past that it will already be so dreadful before anything happens. And I love it. I mean, really, he's one of my, he, he's one of my favorite of the, of the up and coming, might be my favorite of the up and coming directors just because of that. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. It's worth your time. And for the yes. record, it was Jennifer Jason Lee and oh, Dorothy thank Parker. God. And thank God. Was, <laughs> I don't know why that suddenly <laughs> sounded wrong to me, but that's <laughs> it's kind of fallen yeah. out of sight. I think that's why. Otherwise I'd, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So we don't want to make this sound like we're in any way condemning him. He's, in fact, he's having a typical experience. It's almost, it's so hard to be an indie director making the leap to the big budget mainstream. It's, it's so even if it's not a big budget, making the leap to the mainstream thing, working with you know power players, is just agony. Most most indie filmmakers don't make it. Yeah, it's just a it's just a leap that's that's almost impossible for for people to manage. And so he's done well, considering, I think he's doing quite well, considering how impossible it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I think, yeah. like, ultimately, we endorse the Northman. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a cinephile, you should already have seen it. If you're really yes. into movies, you yeah. should have seen it already. It's, it's an, an interesting enough film that you should have already gone. But if you haven't, yes. you should go. But yeah, it's just, it's just more the very thing that I identify with him which is this amazing hooking you in emotionally thing that he can do. I, that, when it didn't happen, I was really flummoxed. So that's yeah. the main takeaway. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. But, you know, still worth your two hours and 27 minutes or whatever it is. Absolutely. So, no question. Yeah. All right. I think we've beaten this to death. Yep. We did it. We did it. So, we beat Robert Eggers half to death. Okay. <laughs> no. So what's and that up? is it. Oh, sorry. What's coming up for us? Oh, what's coming up? We are going to do what is coming up. We just discussed this. 
We are, oh, we're going on to another must-see. So there's an Alex Garland film coming up, the horror film called Men. Um, it stars Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. It's a folk horror. It's about a, a woman who's a, a new widow who moves out into the English countryside and is terrorized by um, a local or locals who apparently from the preview all look like Rory Kinnear. Um, but it's <laughs> Alex Garland. And, you know, he's the guy who did Ex Machina and um, 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 what's his second film? Annihilation? Annihilation. So, you know, he's also made himself a kind of must-see auteur figure by now. So, you know, This is our third folk horror in a row. I know. Well, Virtually. it's such a, it's an absolutely booming genre, and thank God it's actually a good one. So yeah. it it's, gives you hope There's a, that we can have, it's not a new genre, but I mean, it's a revived one that's bigger than it's ever been. Totally. And it's really giving us some interesting movies, so thank God for it. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> um, and that is it for our Northman and the strange case of Ro uh, the strange case, the strange career of Robert Eggers. <laughs> Thank you, our dear listeners. Triple thanks to our subscribers. Keep us in Viking drinking horns. Oh, also blowing horns and fur capes. <laughs> um, if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film suck content that are just the half you get available to the public. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And again, in two weeks, join us when we're talking Alex Garland and his new folk horror movie, Men. Until next time, thank you all once again for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye.